You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from Denverite and Westward. From Denverite, I'll be reading, Denver comic Darius Dinkins speaks candidly about his experience in the city's comedy scene by Isaac Vargas, and why homelessness solutions aren't working and what the unhoused need, according to 828 people experiencing homelessness by Kyle Harris. From Westward, I'll be reading, Are Wolves an Experimental Population? The Answer Could Affect Reintroduction, by Katie Cheshire. And, His E-Bike Was Stolen Twice, But Dave Wolf Is Still on a Roll, by Connor McCormick-Cavanaugh. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. These first two articles are from Denverite. Denver comic Darius Dinkins speaks candidly about his experience in the city's comedy scene, by Isaac Vargas. Darius Dinkins, 23, had a moment's notice to commit to opening for the famous American comedian Hannibal Buress at Denver's High Dive, 7 South Broadway, earlier this year. He and his girlfriend had turned in for the day when he received a text at 6.37 p.m. from Al Jackson, the co-host of the nationally broadcast talk show Daily Blast Live. Yo, yo, this is Al Main. Are you in town tonight? Jackson's message read. Dinkins was suddenly given a 10-minute slot at 9.15 p.m. that same day. I remember just pacing in my living room waiting to hear back until I got the confirmation, he said. Dinkins is a member of Denver's Slam Nuba and hosts Jokes and Jerks, a comedy show every first and third Thursday at Penthouse Caribbean, 1600 Champa Street. And he has seen some bright lights in the past year which have propelled his career. They include a set in 2022 at the world-famous New York Comedy Cellar, where comedic legends like Dave Chappelle, Jon Stewart, and Robin Williams have passed through, just to name a few. As soon as I walked inside, the first dude I saw was Godfrey. Other people were talking about Hulu and Netflix specials, he said. In the cellar, the lights were pretty bright. It's like I swam across a lake that day. So, now, what is a pool? I might have folded for the Hannibal show if I hadn't swam across a lake. Dinkins is a self-described weirdo. Dinkins has floated around for most of his life. Comedy was his tool for observing the rapidly changing world around him. I was 13 or 14 on the bus listening to stand-up on Pandora, laughing out loud listening to Godfrey, he said. He grew up in a military family and spent years living in Greece, Missouri, and Kentucky before eventually landing in Colorado where his mother had family. He graduated from Grandview High School and briefly studied at Metro State University before dropping out to chase his comedic dreams. His father wasn't too fond of that. For a while, I had this joke that I'd tell other comedians. As a comedian, you only have two options for a relationship with your father. Either it's really terrible... Or, he's dead, Dinkins said. But he finally came to a show two years ago, and I got my third option. Dad is now on board. Dinkins spoke candidly about what it's like to be a black comic in front of white audiences. You have to be careful. Careful about what you're saying, how you're saying it, and what it is conveying. Are they laughing at what you're saying, or are they laughing at you? 
Are they laughing at your ideas, or they are laughing at the black dude in the room, Dinkin said. Whether you signed up for it or not, you're a representative, and you don't want to make jokes at the expense of black people. But it also depends on how deep a comic is going to think about that. Dinkins is committed to growing the comedy scene for everyone in the city. At the Black History Month Comedy Showcase, presented by Slam Nuba and hosted at Redline Contemporary Art Center, Dinkins brought in comedians with all sorts of accolades. It included Mason King, who had headlined at the famous Apollo Comedy Club in New York, Mecca Moe from HBO's Game Theory and the New York Comedy Festival's 2022 list of comics to watch, Park Hill comic Tyree Dillard, who performed with J.B. Smoove and is a frequent performer at Denver Improv, and Chanel Hughes, who is a semi-finalist in the annual Comedy Works New Faces competition and has performed at festivals across the country. In the Denver comedy scene, it's a group of people giving the same $40 back and forth, Dinkins said, in reference to a community of comedians that book one another and produce shows around the city. The scene is good. We're not L.A., New York, or Chicago, but we're not a nothing city. The issue is not a matter of talent. Talent is here. It's a matter of exposure. The people who come to my shows often tell me I was their first comedy show, especially people in my age bracket. Dinkins is working with the Slam Nuba team to organize the Women's History Month showcase later this month. Potential is actually one of my least favorite words because it means something is not as good as it could be. But even I say it, Denver has potential. When I entered the comedy scene, it was tough for me. But I hope to leave it better than how I got there, Dinkins said. After the Hannibal Burris show, Dinkins asked Jackson why he chose to reach out to him for the opener slot. Hannibal told me he needed a young comic who had a future in comedy, Jackson told Dinkins. Dinkins says he'll never forget that. Why homelessness solutions aren't working and what the unhoused need, according to 828 people experiencing homelessness, by Kyle Harris. Many Denver candidates in the 2023 race discuss what resources people experiencing homelessness should accept. But there isn't much evidence political hopefuls are speaking with unhoused people about what they say they need. The housing advocacy group, the House Keys Action Network Denver, or HAND, and the Western Regional Advocacy Project, RAP, just released Pipe Dreams and Picket Fences, a report of results from a massive 2022 housing survey that asked 828 people experiencing homelessness what sort of housing solutions advocates should fight for. The report also analyzed the state of public housing over the past decade and the failures of current homelessness prevention policies. If we are working to end homelessness, as is so often stated, this work must be directed by houseless people themselves, the report states. Lived experience offers an intimate understanding and ability to identify current and foreseeable obstacles that perpetuate this ever-present issue. This report provides direction for and by houseless people around the kind of housing sought, the priorities, desires, barriers, pathways to accessing, and support needed for housing. In recent political debates, some candidates have speculated that many unhoused people simply don't want housing. The results of the survey suggest that isn't true in the vast majority of cases. Between 93% and 99% of houseless people want some form of housing, the report states, 
but four walls and a roof aren't necessarily enough. People want safety where they're staying, their freedom and community, according to the report. Housing needs to offer residents the basics, the ability to control the temperature, restrooms with showers, and accessible locations. So-called affordable housing isn't actually attainable by most people experiencing homelessness, Hand reported. At least 88% of people surveyed need housing priced below $1,000. At least 60% needed to be priced under $600. And at least 12% needed to be free. Over 50% of people say they can't afford housing because they don't have access to money. And 38% can't afford it because of bad credit scores that disqualify them from renting. But there are other issues that make securing housing tough. 35% of people surveyed don't have a phone. Nearly 33% lack official documents. And nearly 32% have felony charges. For people who secure housing, keeping it can be tough. For 63%, the main barrier to staying housed is needing some sort of financial support. Other top issues that allow people to stay housed include being allowed to invite guests into their spaces, needing help navigating paperwork and bureaucracy, legal support or mental health support. Curfews, restrictions on guests, staff room checks, religious requirements, and bans on roommates or partners block people from choosing some housing options. Houseless people rightfully lack faith in the housing system, according to the report. Their doubt is backed by years-long wait lists, abysmal housing lottery odds, and a dependency on service providers and case managers as gatekeepers. People interviewed for the survey said they waited more than two years on wait lists and for nearly four years to actually secure housing. Of the people interviewed, 36% lived in shelter. While housing vouchers are one of the common tools used to get people housed, only 44% of the people surveyed had accessed housing or knew someone who had through a voucher, and just 28% of people preferred vouchers to pre-built affordable housing units. Landlord discrimination, the need for housing navigation services, and the struggle to find housing proved to be barriers for people using vouchers. The study also looks at the erosion of public housing over the past 10 years and a shift toward market-based solutions that Hand argues do not meet the actual needs of unhoused people. According to the report, the U.S. has lost 228,289 low-income public housing units, and Denver has lost 731 public housing units. The alternative strategy for providing housing has been a voucher system, which, Hand says, in its report, has failed for the majority of people who receive vouchers. In 2021, five months after receiving vouchers through the Denver Housing Authority, over one month beyond the current 120-day expiration, only 77 of 1,000 people with vouchers got housing, according to the report. This is an 8% chance of finding housing using a voucher. Low-income housing tax credits have increased by 181%, according to the report, and most of that money has funded 12,588 units of housing for people making between 40% to 70% of the area median income. Compare that to the mere 3,029 units of housing for people making under 30% of the area median income. Public solutions are needed to address homelessness, according to the report. Hand asserts that developers are profiting from the housing crisis. 
Meanwhile, the Department of Housing and Urban Development budget remains stagnant, even as the cost of construction and housing rises. As the federal government turns to the private market for low-income housing, housing is subsidized for wealthy homeowners, most over 100% AMI, through tax increment financing, the report states. The total in tax deductions awarded nationwide was just under $200 billion in 2019, while the entire budget for the Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, was $53 billion. According to the report, homelessness stems from choices the federal government made since the 1980s. That includes Ronald Reagan-era gutting of public housing and other social services. Current homelessness strategies that don't prioritize the creation of affordable housing simply aren't working, according to HAND. From top to bottom, the government response to houselessness has failed for one simple reason. It has never acknowledged through action, only words, that the number one cause of houselessness is the absence of housing, the report stated. To this day, there has been an entrenched reluctance to create affordable housing. The response has been a continual rearranging of the deck chairs on the Titanic. The following articles are from Westward. Are wolves an experimental population? The answer could affect reintroduction, by Katie Cheshire. A section of Colorado's draft wolf reintroduction plan proposes strategies for managing wolves that include potentially injurious hazing and lethal control, but that section can't go forward unless the federal government designates wolves as a non-essential experimental population in Colorado under Section 10J of the Endangered Species Act. With wolves being a federally endangered species, there's very limited flexibility in being able to deal with conflicts, says Nicole Alt, Colorado Ecological Services Project Leader with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, who has been working with Colorado Parks and Wildlife to develop a 10J designation. What adding in the non-essential experimental population allows us to do is provide additional flexibility to ourselves, to states, tribes, and landowners for greater options for dealing with conflict. Currently, the only times actions are allowed that could injure or kill wolves are when human life is in imminent danger. This designation seeks to change that in order to help Colorado successfully reintroduce gray wolves by the end of the year, which it is required to do after voters approved Proposition 114 in 2020. Predators on the landscape get into trouble, Alt points out. Not every wolf will have an interaction with livestock. However, based on our years of experience of introducing wolves across the United States, really in the northern Rockies, having this management flexibility is critically important to conservation success. The proposed U.S. Fish and Wildlife Plan would designate wolves as a non-essential experimental population because the animals that will be released in Colorado are not considered essential to the continued existence of the entire species. Under that designation, wolves would be treated the way a species that is proposed for the endangered species list is treated, rather than the way wolves are currently treated as an officially listed species. According to a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Fact Sheet on 10J designations, a non-essential experimental population provides additional flexibility because other federal agencies are not required to consult with us. Instead, other agencies need only confer with U.S. Fish and Wildlife, 
a less formal process that can result in optional conservation recommendations. The full draft 10-J plan for Colorado is 80 pages long, but U.S. Fish and Wildlife summarized it in a newsletter to make it more accessible to members of the public who want to comment on the proposal. The non-essential experimental designation that we're proposing for Colorado tracks with our previous models that we did for the Northern Rockies in the 90s, Alt says. We're looking at our previous experience as well as collaborating with the state of Colorado on their needs and interests for management flexibility as we develop the draft rule. The draft proposes that the entire state of Colorado be included in the designation so that even wolves that have wandered into the state on their own as one pack has in North Park, would be covered by the designation. That proposal is the preferred outcome presented in the 10-J draft, which also specifies that it would allow the management activities considered in the state's draft wolf plan. A less preferable outcome would designate only wolves in a limited geographical area with less management flex flexibility. For populations outside the area, a specific permit would be required. The least preferred outcome would be no designation at all. The proposed rule would allow the service and its designated agents to take gray wolves under specific circumstances, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Newsletter explains. Take is a term for those injurious or lethal control methods. The plan would also allow U.S. Fish and Wildlife, or CPW, to authorize others to take wolves if there is confirmed wolf activity on private land, a public land grazing allotment, or a tribal reservation that necessitates harassment. If a wolf is actively depredating livestock on private or public land, if an incidental take occurs, and in other limited circumstances that would require written authorization. The public has until April 18th to comment on the draft. Because the state's planning process and the federal designation planning process are separate activities happening at the same time, there can be confusion between the two. The legality of the state's plan depends on the federal designation, but the federal designation does not do more than allow flexibility under the Endangered Species Act. For folks who are concerned about the reintroduction program, the logistics, the places where wolves are going to be released, that's all in the state plan, Alt explains. What our rule does is it provides a regulatory framework under the Endangered Species Act for the state to be able to implement implement their plan. From public comment on the 10-J proposal, U.S. Fish and Wildlife hopes to determine whether the plan encompasses all the needs of stakeholders in Colorado and if people understand what is and isn't allowed. In its newsletter, U.S. Fish and Wildlife suggests considering the, the proposed geographic boundary, the adequacy of the proposed regulations, and management flexibilities that could be added to the final rule. It's an important part of the process for us to be able to understand various perspectives and understand what the concerns of stakeholders in the public are, are related to the action that we're taking, Alt says. Once public comment closes, U.S. Fish and Wildlife will respond and possibly adjust the draft based on that feedback. It will also incorporate information that it gains from peer review of the draft by experts not involved in the Colorado wolf reintroduction process, as well as feedback from tribal entities in and near the state. The goal is to have the plan in place by the end of the year so that Colorado can meet its requirement to have the first set of reintroduced wolves on the grounds by then. His e-bike was stolen twice, 
but Dave Wolf is still on a roll by Connor McCormick Cavanaugh. Many Denver residents have had a bike stolen. Dave Wolf has had his expensive e-bike stolen not once, but twice, and he's managed to get it back both times. This is going to kill Denver's move to biking and mobility if you can't go anywhere on your bike without the fear of it being stolen, Wolf says. Wolf bought his Gazelle Ultimate C380 Plus electric bike from Good Turn Cycles in early August. With help from a $1,200 City of Denver rebate, Wolf paid $3,967 out of pocket for his prized possession. He was one of 4,734 residents who redeemed e-bike rebates, which Denver's Office of Climate Action, Sustainability, and Resiliency, CASR, began offering on Earth Day 2022. The city program, designed to get people commuting by bike instead of car, has been a huge hit. This program showed there was a desire in our community for new sustainable mobility options, and I'm excited to see the e-bike rebate program expand and continue to evolve our residents' transportation habits, Mayor Michael Hancock said when the program rolled over in January. CASR released another round of rebates on January 31st. It plans to issue releases in March, May, July, September, and November this year. The $1,200 income-restricted rebate requirements remain the same. Wolf was one of 2,330 people, almost half the total of those who got rebates last year, who received an income-qualified rebate last year, which put $1,200 to an e-bike purchase instead of the standard $400. This year, the regular rebate has been lowered to $300, CASR also dropped the add-on rebate for cargo e-bikes from $500 to $200. We reduced the amount of the standard rebate from $400 to $300 because the average cost of an e-bike purchased with our vouchers in 2022 dropped by $500, thanks in large part due due to the market competition and demand caused by our rebates. We lowered the additional rebate for e-cargo bikes because it turned out that the average difference in cost between a regular e-bike and an e-cargo bike purchased with our rebates was less than $150, says Chelsea Warren, a spokesperson for CASR. Wolf, who had gone car-free earlier in 2022, also got a doggy trailer attachment and started riding around town with his two dogs. It's amazing how much shorter the distances become on an e-bike. I was having a lot of fun, he says. But then Wolf ran into a bump in the road. In late August, someone stole his e-bike from the bike rack in the outdoor compound compound of his apartment complex near City Park. Wolf had left his bike outside since it was too heavy to carry up the stairs to his third floor apartment. The thief got through the complex's fences and cut through two locks to get the bike. Wolf had installed an Apple AirTag on his e-bike, though, so he pulled out his iPhone and saw that his bike was at Colorado Boulevard and East 13th Avenue. When he called the Denver Police Department to tell them he was heading over there, he was advised to wait until officers arrived. He went anyway, but by then the bike had moved to Holly Street and East Colfax Avenue. Continuing to monitor the AirTag, Wolf borrowed a friend's SUV and eventually tracked down his bike. He caught three people with it, involved in some kind of transaction. When he told them it was his bike, they gave it back and scurried off. In 2019, there were 343 reported bike thefts in Denver. 
That figure hit 388 in 2020 and 567 in 2021 before dropping to 277 in 2022. So far in 2023, there have already been 267 reported bike thefts. The DPD does not distinguish between bike and e-bike thefts in this data. Reports of bike theft rarely result in arrests. In 2022, just 1.3% of cases ended with arrests. Bikes were recovered in only 2.4% of the total thefts reported. When someone is the victim of a bike theft, we always recommend that they report it to DPD as soon as possible. It is also very important to have information, such as the serial number, ready for officers. This will allow for officers to have a better way to recover and return the bike to the owner. If the owner happens to locate their bike, we recommend they contact DPD immediately and not to confront the suspect if one is present. Confronting the suspect can be dangerous because the suspect may be armed, says Jay Casillas, a DPD spokesperson. Wolf ended up moving from his apartment near City Park to one in the Hale neighborhood that was on the first floor. That way, he could store the bike inside without having to climb a staircase. I would say it was about 95% of the reason why I moved, he says. On March 2nd, Wolf biked over to a massage therapist in the Spear neighborhood. He secured his bike with a heavy-duty lock before heading inside. When he got back outside, his bike was gone. They cut right through it, says Wolf. Someone actually caught them doing it, I guess after they had already freed the bike from the lock. The person tried chasing them down, but wasn't able to catch them. The witness left a note describing what had happened and what the thieves looked like. Once again, Wolf checked the air tag, called a lift, and started heading to where the air tag was pinging. On the way, he called the cops to let them know about the theft and that he was on his way to get his bike back. By the time he got to the location a few blocks south, though, the thieves were gone, perhaps notified by their own iPhones that the bike was being tracked by an air tag. But the bike was there, leaning against a building in an alley. It was not damaged, but the lock and a specialized bike bag were gone. That was a $300 loss for Wolf, but he was just glad to be able to ride home. I probably wouldn't leave it outside that same place any longer. It's an office building. There's just not enough foot traffic going in and out, Wolf says. I think I'm probably fine leaving it at a grocery store because there's enough foot traffic. But outside of that, I'm going to be a little more intimidated about where I leave it. Colorado Woman Came Out of Retirement to Cover Bills, Including Excel Increases, by Katie Cheshire. Patricia Mills Sanchez is 75 years old. She went back to work about a year ago because she and her husband, who is a Vietnam veteran, needed extra money to cover their rising cost of living, including increased medical expenses and also rising property taxes and utility bills. Everything's going up, and our income is not, Mills Sanchez says. Since I got a job, it hasn't been too bad. We don't qualify for any kind of help. We struggled to make sure we could make the gas and electric payment. Neither one of us wants to keep our thermostat set at 68 degrees because we're both cold all the time. So we keep our thermostat set at 70, and we know we're going to have to pay the price for that. Mills Sanchez retired from Lockheed Martin with a pension after a 45-year career in human resources. She and her husband used to be able to live off a combination of Social Security and pensions, but when that no longer paid the bills, she started a job search. 
At first, she wasn't sure that she'd be able to find something appropriate. But a year ago, she found a job at South Suburban Parks and Recreation in Littleton as a part-time human resources assistant. It's a delightful place to work with really great people, she says. It's really added a lot to my life, in addition to helping me financially. She only planned to stay there for six months, which she thought would be enough to help the couple get out of their financial rut. But she decided to stay because she enjoys the work. And she was glad she'd stuck around when high XL energy bills hit communities across Colorado this winter. Mills Sanchez pays for a supplement to Medicare because she and her husband have both had medical issues over the past few years and they need more coverage. The price for that coverage goes up annually, representing the largest increase in the family's cost of living. But the variability in XL bills make them trickier to manage. The couple's centennial home where they have lived for four years, is about 1,350 square feet on the main level. They spend most of their time there. Although the house includes a rarely used basement, neither manages stairs well these days. Even with our solar credits, our bill was $190 in February, and it keeps going up every month, Mills Sanchez says, adding that it's hard for her to even estimate what a normal bill would be because of how much it changes month to month. The latest bill, due March 30th, is for $214, with about $140 for gas and $94 for electricity. In the summer, their bill is much lower because of the home's solar panels. In sunny months, the solar credits offset the cost of powering the house. But the panels don't help as much in the winter, when there's less sun and natural gas is required to heat their home. Excel passes the commodity price of the natural gas it purchases on to customers. According to Aaron O'Neill, chief economist with the Colorado Public Utilities Commission, which regulates Excel in the state, those gas prices were the main driver of high bills earlier this year. Electricity didn't have as large a swing because of more stable renewable energy sources, such as wind and solar. Despite natural gas causing price increases for customers, Excel is helping power Coloradans for energy access, a nonprofit group fighting the push to heat homes with electricity rather than natural gas, according to reporting by Colorado Public Radio. Coloradans for Energy Access went public in 2022 and published an opinion piece at the time in the Colorado Sun, noting that it had launched in order to support the use of natural gas in homes and businesses, warning that electrification would raise energy prices, threaten reliability, and hurt low-income Coloradans. In 2021, as the nonprofit was forming, Joni Zitch, the senior director of gas strategy for Excel, served as a board member. Excel donated $80,000 to Coloradans for Energy Access in 2022. The group has also been linked to Black Hills Energy, Atmos Energy, and Colorado Summit Utilities. Excel says that natural gas is necessary for the company to reach its vision of reaching net-zero greenhouse gas emissions. The company has an interim target to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from its supply, delivery, and use of natural gas by 25% by 2030. We empower choice for our customers, Excel says through spokesperson Tyler Bryant. Coloradans for energy access represents affordability and reliability and choice We are members of many different organizations in Colorado who represent different perspectives on energy. 
Though some consumers have reported problems with hooking up their solar panels to Excel, problems that the PUC pledged to look into at a February listening session, Mills Sanchez says that her solar panels have helped her plan her budget. The cost of her lease for the panels is $150 per month and doesn't fluctuate. Most of her friends have moved to retirement communities, Mills Sanchez notes. She and her husband have been able to stay in their home because she was able to return to work, something she knows is impossible for everyone. It's important for them to stay in the Denver area in order to be close to their grandchildren. I was lucky I had an education that I could get a job that just requires sitting at a computer because I have an artificial hip, Mills Sanchez says. The hardest part has been that everything is going up. It's a struggle for people our age, and I thank God that I was able to go back to work. I'm not sure how much longer I'm going to be able to work, but I'm going to try and hang in there for at least another six months or so. Other Coloradans with worries like those of Mills Sanchez can share their thoughts with the Joint Select Committee on Rising Utility Rates formed in February by State Senate President Steve Finberg and House Speaker Julie McCluskey in response to increases in utility bills across Colorado. The committee is investigating the root cause of those increases and considering policy interventions. To weigh in, email energybills at coleg.gov. Murder Incorporated Gang of Crows Runs Denver's Uptown Neighborhood by Connor McCormick-Cavanaugh Decades ago, residents of North Capitol Hill decided it was time for an image change. The neighborhood, which is bounded by Broadway, Ogden Street, and Park Avenue from Colfax to 20th Avenue, had a reputation as a dangerous place where late-night fights at bars were a common occurrence. So neighbors rebranded the place in the mid-1980s, adopting the name Uptown. It stuck. But another name for this section of Denver might be more appropriate these days. Crow Town. Along the 1700 block of Grant Street and just a few blocks to the north in Benedict Fountain Park, crows run the neighborhood. It's difficult to tell if these crows are composed of two separate murders, the collective noun for groups of the birds, or if there's just one murder that alternates between the trees at these two locations. Whatever the case, tens of thousands of crows now call Uptown home. While the birds are recent transplants to the neighborhood, they've already made a big impact, defecating all over cars, sidewalks, park benches, and streets. Dave Burdick, a bird guy and the digital managing editor at Colorado Public Radio, which has an office at 303 East 17th Avenue, has become quite familiar with crow crap. I have hurriedly parked my bike under those trees a few times and used up all my parking luck, possibly forever. One night, election night, two staffers learned that the worst of the damage happens in the dark, which resulted in two car washes each. And about 20 feet outside the window behind my desk, there has been a dead crow hanging from a tree limb for months through all kinds of storms, Burdick says. I think the main thing I hear from people is basically awe at the sheer numbers. Except for the people whose cars got free crow paint jobs, they have moved past awe. Like any good story involving crows, why these birds now hang in remains something of a mystery. I'm not an expert on crows, admits Vicky Vargas Madrid, the wildlife program administrator at Denver Parks and Recreation, who says that she's received many emails and calls recently from people complaining about crows in Denver. 
Without being able to ask a crow, my guess for why they are here and hang out in large concentrations is this. It's quite common for crows to gather in large numbers in one area during this time of year, when the temperatures are frigid cold like it's been. Crows do this to insulate the warmth of one another to keep warm. It also protects them from predators. Well, in years past, Denver Parks and Rec culled geese in city parks to keep that avian population in check. The department won't be doing anything like that with the crows, a few of whom have fallen prey to the recent spate of highly contagious avian flu. Denver Parks takes a hands-off approach to wildlife issues and allows nature to take its course. As the weather warms up, the crows will begin to disperse. It's also important that people not put food out, such as birdseed, for them, which causes them to congregate longer, Vargas Madrid says. Like Vargas Madrid, Kenyon Moon, a Denver-based urban bird expert, acknowledges that it's tough to pin down exactly why the crows have chosen these two locations in Uptown as their winter home. He speculates that the birds are roosting in the trees for protection from predators and the elements. I don't know if the acoustic properties of the location play into it, but it may. They love to talk when they're all together, and the ability to talk at a greater distance to a larger group may play into it, says Moon. Of course, noise dampening may be the thing they look for too, but what level of echo versus dampening versus transmission would be involved, I don't know. A more definitive answer would involve identifying multiple sites that are used in consecutive winters and analyzing them as landscapes to identify commonalities, and then test whether these com- those commonalities can predict the site choice of congregations in the future or in other areas of the state or country, Moon says. Until then, uptown residents should probably just carry umbrellas. Freddie Jones Band celebrates the 30th anniversary of In a Daydream by Natalie Barrett. This year marks the 30th anniversary of the Freddie Jones Band's biggest hit, In a Daydream, which topped the AAA radio charts at number one in 1993. In celebration of the milestone, the alternative rock band decided to release a reworked version of the song last year and is now embarking on the 30th anniversary In a Daydream tour, which stops at the Oriental Theater on Friday, March 10th, with Denver music icon Hazel Miller opening the show. People always come up to us and tell us how the song was a huge part of their life, says longtime band member and bassist Rich Ross, who has also spent many years touring with The Samples and playing with Nashville Nashville country artists Phil Vassar and Joss Grasson. When you release a song that is that powerful, where it captures people and takes them back to a special place, moment in their life, it becomes part of their personal collection of songs, a soundtrack of their life. Ross says the purpose behind re-releasing In a Daydream was twofold. One, it's that song that fans come out to the shows for, he explains. And two, We want people to hear how we perform it live. Obviously, we have matured in the last 30 years, and we play the song differently than how we did when we were younger. We also have some different players in the band, so their personalities seep into how they play the song. Releasing it was our way of celebrating the original song release in 1993, as well as saying, hey, this is exactly how we perform this song live now. Dubbed the Darlings of AAA Radio and King of AAA, the Freddie Jones Band cracked the upper echelons of the Billboard charts with its top five radio hits, Take the Time, 
Hold On to Midnight, and Home Thing. The Freddie Jones Band is sure to play such hits at the Oriental on Friday, and Ross is especially excited to see Miller open the show. Hazel has been a friend of mine for over 20 years. She's a great person, great friend, and a great singer, says Ross, who, along with guitarist Terry Goldstein, lives in Denver. Denverites can expect a high-energy show, hit songs, and a few surprises as well. The band members have extremely different musical interests, so we pop in a few songs that you wouldn't expect us to play. We always try to give people something they haven't seen before at a Freddie Jones Band concert. Joining Ross on stage will be founding frontman Marty Lloyd, Goldstein, and drummer Greg Goose LaPointe. Despite the band's name, Ross affirms that none of the members were ever named Freddie Jones. When Marty was in college, he was practicing at a guy's house, and this band was named after the guy singing. Marty said as a tribute to that guy, he was going to name his own band after a fictitious person, a random name, explains Ross. Originally, the band was going to be called Fred, but then Marty and his bandmates came up with Freddie Jones' band out of the blue. Apart from the worthy jubilee for In a Daydream, the band is also celebrating its two new singles, Connected and Mirror Ball. Those songs had been sitting in a Dropbox file that Lloyd sent Ross in 2015. It wasn't until 2019, when I was sitting around, that I took a listen to the songs, Ross recalls. I called Marty right away and said, Man, these demos are really good. We should go record them. And that's what they did in January of 2020, when the band had a couple of days off from touring. We went to studio on the ridge in Nashville to flesh out the songs, Ross says. We were going to have them mixed in March, but then the pandemic hit, so we waited a year and a half before we actually did it, until times were more stable. The band first released Connected on October 21, 2021, then In a Daydream, 30th Anniversary Edition, six months later, and Mirrorball at the end of February. Ross says the band has plans to add the three tracks to a forthcoming EP due out sometime in the next couple of months. After the Freddie Jones Band wraps up its Denver show, it'll be working on booking into its spring into fall tour dates, which usually include 40 to 50 shows per year. We're not a touring band that goes out on long tours. We are a national touring band that plays Nashville touring style, which is a phrase that was derived from country artists wanting to spend time with their families, but also wanting to go out on the road, explains Ross. Ticket sales don't usually do well Monday through Thursday, so Thursday through Sunday is how many of them do it, as do we. And since we all have families, having that balance between work and home life doesn't burn us out. It keeps us pumped for each show and appreciative that we get to do what we love. Freddie Jones Band, 30th Anniversary In a Daydream Tour with Hazel Miller, 7.30 p.m. Friday, March 10th, Oriental Theater, 4335 West 44th Avenue. Tickets are $28 to $35 and available on the Oriental Theater website. Levitt Pavilion announces Summer Concert Lineup by Westward Staff. While the Denver Botanic Gardens announced its Summer Concert Series last, se- last week, there are many more musical outdoor adventures to look forward to in Metro Denver. Over the past six years, Levitt Pavilion has hosted free concerts on the sprawling, lush green grass of Ruby Hill Park that has made the venue a summer destination for music lovers. 
the nonprofit Levitt just announced the return of its free summer concert series with a lineup that offers something for everyone, as well as its roster of ticketed concerts for the summer. Tickets for those shows, as well as RSVP and limited VIP tickets for Levitt's free summer concert series, go on sale at 10 a.m. Saturday, March 10th. Here's a list of the free concerts. On May 6th, Fishbone. May 11th, Etana. May 19th, Sun Little. May 20th, The Slackers. May 27th, Sun Rompe Pera. June 4th, Central City Opera. June 17th, Strange Famous Fest, featuring Sage Francis and SFR label mates. June 25th, Brazilian Day, featuring Ginga and Bateria. June 7th, The Wailing Souls. The ticketed concerts are May 21st, The Violent Femmes, performing debut album Violent Femmes with Jesse Ahern. June 15th, Garbage and Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds with special guest Metric. June 23rd, Cake. June 26th, Bittersweet Days with Cave Town, MXM Tune, Ricky Montgomery, and Grant Perez. August 8th, Yellow Card with Anne Berlin, This Wild Life, and Emo Night Brooklyn. August 8th, Trombone Shorty and Orleans Avenue and Ziggy Marley with Mavis Staples and Robert Randolph Band. And on August 20th, Glenn Hansard and Marquetta Irglova of the Swell Season. Road Trip Longmont is an under-the-radar culinary destination by Molly Martin. I made the 45-minute drive from downtown Denver to Longmont one weekend simply to try a slice of pizza. Hours later, my boyfriend and I were still there, sipping cocktails at a small restaurant and bar in a residential neighborhood while I looked up houses in the area on Zillow. Just one afternoon in the town had me hooked, and very full. For a long time, it was Longmont's neighbor, Boulder, that got the most culinary buzz for its fine dining scene. Over the past decade, however, Metro Denver's food and drink options have grown in many exciting ways, with local chefs and restaurants nabbing big-name awards and landing on major national lists. And Longmont, with its laid-back, small-town feel, has quietly become a culinary destination in its own right, particularly for those who enjoy delicious eats at low-key spots where you're likely to make a new friend. When we'd walked into Rosalie's Pizza at 461 Main Street, we were immediately greeted by an energetic woman behind the bar who poured me a glass of prosecco. It turned out to be Amy Ross, who opened this popular spot with her husband, James, in 2014, after the two met and fell in love while attending culinary school in Denver. As we ate sausage rolls swimming in garlic butter, a Rosalie's regular sitting next to us at the bar began offering recommendations for other must-visit spots for food and drinks in Longmont, and I quickly began taking notes. Several slices of the best East Coast-style pizza I've had in the state later which landed Rosalie's a bonus spot on our recent list of the best places to get pizza in Metro Denver, James Ross offered up a recommendation of his own for another standout pizzeria nearby, Urban Field Pizza and Market, which opened last year. Too full to tackle another round of pizza, we headed out on a different mission suggested by our new pal. Have you been to the cheese shop? she asked. She was talking about cheese importers at 103 Main Street, 
located inside the building that once held the city's first electric power utility service. Cheese importers moved into the space in 2012 after being founded by Lyman and Linda White back in 1976. They started the business five blocks from where we are now, out of our home with a VW pickup bus and six types of cheese from Wisconsin, explains Clara White, their daughter. They were also the first to bring Brie to Colorado. My parents were always incredibly progressive. Back then, the company only sold wholesale, supplying restaurants, shops, and neighborhood groups with bulk cheese at a time when the market was dominated by Velveeta and other processed products. While her father passed away in 2010, Clara, her brother Sam, and their mother still run Cheese Importers, which remains primarily focused on its wholesale business, sourcing cheeses locally and from around the world for many of the region's top eateries, specialty shops, and grocery stores. But the retail location is a must-visit for many reasons. We like to feed your soul. That's our goal as a company, Clara notes. The large and open space is filled to the brim with gourmet goodies dried pasta, olive oil, vinegar, candy, cookware, and much, much more line the sprawling market. But the best part of this stop is the refrigerated cheese room. You'll want to layer up before stepping inside. Getting chilly is no excuse for cutting your fromage expedition short. The cases are loaded with more than 600 varieties of cheese from around the world, as well as packaged charcuterie and an olive bar. Not sure where to start? The staff is well-versed in the art of cheese service, offering up recommendations and expertly pointing overwhelmed visitors in the direction of an Italian blue cheese soaked in gin, sweet red vermouth and Campari, a soft French cheese topped with a signature green leaf that is best served warm, or one of Clara's favorites for breakfast, Jettost, a sweet caramel-like cheese from Norway. The shop also has a small cafe that shut down during the pandemic and remains closed. Clara says that food costs and staffing both continue to be a challenge, but she hopes the cafe can make a comeback in the future. Despite the setbacks of the pandemic, and even as Longmont itself grows and evolves, cheese importers remains a mainstay in the town. It's a huge blessing to still be alive and thriving, Clara says. It's from the community support and the love. Longmont is really a little gym. After loading up on way more cheese than we could possibly consume in a weekend, we headed off to the Primitive Beer Tap Room. It's located at 2025 Ionosphere Street in Longmont's Prospect Newtown neighborhood, a quirky area filled with brightly colored housing and funky street names like 100-Year Party Court and Neon Forest Circle. Here you can sip some of the most interesting options in an area packed with breweries, and it specializes in 100% spontaneously fermented brews. Originally, Primitive only served beer in boxes, but since the pandemic, it's begun finding a new groove, adding more beers on tap as well as a selection of vintage barley wines from England and authentic Belgian lambics. A short drive north took us to the historic Old Town in the West Side Tavern at 1283 3rd Avenue, which is surrounded by homes, including that of owner Wes Isbut, who opened this eclectic gastropub in 2017. We arrived in the early evening as a small drove of people made their way toward the entrance, seemingly appearing out of nowhere all at once. 
Inside, vintage films played on screens above the bar, while the patio was decked out with tents for heated dining in the colder months and a small tiki bar. With no reservations, that's where we ended up sitting, nice and warm under heat lamps, as I sipped a drink dubbed the Bada Bing, a vodka-based libation with cherry balsamic shrub, lemon, and rosemary syrup served in an extra-large martini glass. An older couple cozied up next to us, and soon we were sharing bites and sips with our new friends as Isbut appeared behind the bar to serve an off-the-menu drink to another regular a few seats down. The couple even paid for our second round of drinks, refusing to take no for an answer and insisting that next time we visited town, we should try their other favorite Longmont eatery, Martini's Bistro. And there will certainly be a next time. We still have plenty of other Longmont recommendations to test out, and apparently many more new friends to meet. On the short list, tiki drinks and island-inspired eats at Suelo's, the namesake items at Blue Corn Tacos, which come on homemade blue corn tortillas, jefes for margaritas, flights at Cooper Wine Bar, Marco's Hot Dogs and Tacos, a stand where you can get a hot dog wrapped in a tortilla, dubbed the Burro Dog, and Landline Donuts, which specializes in coffee, soft serve, and potato donuts made using a family recipe from the 1930s, and is outfitted with working retro landline phones and a neon reminder to call your mom. You shouldn't need any reminders to put Longmont on your day trip list, though. Just be sure to arrive hungry and to bring along a cooler for your cheese haul. Westward serving up inaugural out-to-brunch event on June 10th by Westward staff. Westward is introducing a brand new event that celebrates all things brunch, the inaugural Out to Brunch will take place on Saturday, June 10th, from 11.30 to 2.30 at York Street Yards, 3881 Steel Street. The festivities will include bottomless beverages, including unlimited trips to a fest-sized Bloody Mary bar, complete with mixers, and plenty of fixins like carrots, celery, lemons, limes, pepperoncini, olives, horseradish, and a variety of hot sauces and seasonings to customize your boozy creation. Unlimited bites from some of Denver's top brunch spots will also be on the menu. Participating eateries include the OG, Citizen Rail, Syrup and Safta, which landed on our list of the 10 best brunches in Denver, thanks to its fully loaded brunch buffet. If you've enjoyed Takulandia and Feast, our other signature dining events, you won't want to miss Out to Brunch. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.